so, y'all, look, we are, we're jumping back in to today into this walk through the book of Acts. And we started this several months ago when we, when we, got, to, <clears throat> when we got to Acts chapter 8. You saw right on the heels of Stephen being stoned to death at the end of chapter 7. You saw in the first four verses, you saw the church, which is what is the body of Christ, that body of believers, that really that first body of believers in the book of Acts. And it was, you know, 15 to 25,000 people. It was a lot of people that, that the Lord brought to himself over that first couple of three months of, uh, after Pentecost. And we saw them in the beginning of Acts chapter 8, we saw them scatter off into the, into the world. We saw them scatter. Well, when that happened, we, we stepped outside of Acts and did a, about a four-week little series called Collide, which was, uh, we talked through the collision of the church and culture, because that's what happened, it's what happens today, and it's what happened then when the church was born, they went out into the world, what happened, there was a massive collision between the cult, their culture and, and, and their faith. And so we saw that. They were dispersed, and that's what happened. Well, today we're going to be in Acts chapter 8, verse 5, and running uh, to verse, uh, through verse 25. And what we saw in that when they, when they scattered in verse 4, we really saw fulfillment of Jesus' very last words right before he ascended to the Father. In Acts chapter 1 and verse 8, we saw that fulfilled in chapter 8, verse 4. And what, he said, what did he say in, the, in, the, in, the, in chapter 1, verse 8? He said, go be my witnesses. He said, go be my, my witnesses where? In Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and out to the ends of the earth. And so that's beginning to be fulfilled here at the beginning of, of chapter 8. And if you looked in verse 4 where we landed the last time we were in the book of Acts, verse 4 says, now that those who were scattered, what did they do? When they, when they went out and they collided with the culture, what did they do? They went about preaching the word. That's what they did. They went about preaching the word. They went about preaching the word of God. The word pierces us. The word moves us. The word of God inspires us. The Holy Spirit works in us so that we can begin to understand the word of God. Ultimately, this, the Word of God leads us to the author, the author, in all caps, the author. And ultimately, in, in His sovereignty, in God's sovereignty, and in God's timing, the Word will lead to revival. We just sang a beautiful song about revival, Lord, send revival. That was such a powerful word, revival is. And you hear it. And maybe we all get different images in our minds when we hear this, this word revival. Like you see in your mind's eye this big old tent and you hear some preacher uh, preaching hellfire and brimstone and calling people to the cross in a big tent revival from the 30s or 40s or 50s. Maybe, maybe, or you see this, there's an iconic image. That is an iconic image of uh, Billy Graham in Seoul, South Korea standing on the stage preaching to this massive crowd of people. In fact, it was 1973, and he was, there's 1.1 million people in front of him. At the end of that day, 75,000 people filled out a little card that said they'd given their lives to Christ. Now, who knows how many really did that didn't fill out a little card, but 75,000 people said they did. Revival, y'all, let, let me tell you about revival. Revival is it's the visitation of God that brings to life Christians who had been sleeping and restores this deep sense of God's closeness and, and God's holiness. And then there's a conviction of, of sin, a conviction of sin that, that springs up in a, in a significant move of, of, of repentance. We begin to move toward repentance. We, we move towards, towards praise and towards love and towards bringing glory to God. And all of that kind of ultimately results in this massive outpouring of evangelism. 
a huge evangelistic outflow. And every revival movement has its own kind of distinctives. Its own features. It's almost like, like there's its own little DNA, but then there's always a pattern. There's always this kind of template. And this pattern is, the pattern is this. It begins with, really it's preceded by times of absolute depravity, decadence, nasty sin, really bad times, bad times, and then God shows up. And God shows up like in a mighty way. And there's somebody preaching the gospel. Lay person or vocational pastor, it makes no difference. But somebody stands up and preaches the whole gospel, the full gospel, the dead man walked out of a grave alive gospel. And and the gospel is then it's loved like it's never been loved before. Jesus is loved like, like he's never been loved before. And repentance deepens. And then finally the Holy Spirit works. And, and often the Holy Spirit works fast. Godliness multiplies and, and Christians mature and, and converts appear. People begin to get saved in droves and then revival begots revival. It's contagious. It's, it's infectious. Y'all in the 18th century, a man named George Whitfield. He not only traveled through England preaching the gospel, but he made seven trips to the United States between 1738 and 1770. And make no bones about it, if you study history, the early 18th century, the early 1700s, it was a time of depravity. It was terrible times. So Whitfield makes seven trips to America between uh, 1738 and 1770. Whitfield drew huge crowds. It's said that he preached 18,000 sermons to 10 million people. And I've read that, that during what we call the Great Awakening, that was this time in America, that half of the South and a third of the North came to Christ. And there was about a million and a half, million and three quarters, somewhere between a million and a half and two million people here then. Well, the faith and the prayers of the leaders, was the, that was the foundation of the Great Awakening. Before a meeting, George Whitfield would spend hours, sometimes all night, bathing an event in prayer. Fervent church members prayed fervently to keep the, the fires of revival going through their, their neighborhoods and, and, and that God would intervene in the lives of their communities. Now again, this is in the mid-1700s. Whitfield sometimes addressed over 30,000 people at a time. People were starved for truth. People were starved for authenticity. People were hungry for Jesus because something was missing in their lives. Does that sound like today? And we're talking in the mid-1700s. They were starved and craving truth. And Whitfield presented the gospel to the masses, sharing the love and the light of Christ with strength and with vigor and with enthusiasm. The Holy Spirit used George Whitfield to break down um, denominational kind of boundaries. He once said this, and I love this quote from George Whitfield. He said, Father Abraham, who have you in heaven? Any Episcopalians? No. Any Presbyterians? No. Any Independents? No. Any Methodists? No. No, no. Whom have you there, Father Abraham? And Father Abraham answered back, We don't know those names here. All who are here are Christians, believers in Christ, men who have overcome by the blood of the Lamb and the word of his testimony. It is about Jesus Christ. So there's great awakening in America in the 30s, 1730s, and 40s. Huge results. People in masses showed up in churches. Churches multiplied and were planted and the lives of, of those that were saved just were transformed and their walk became so much more Christ-like. 
I said a minute ago, all these denominational barriers broke down. Christians, all Christians, whatever denomination, they, they work together for Christ like never before. There was a renewed, fervent, passionate uh, renewal of missions. As more and more young men became, to, uh, be, became prepared for Christian service as pastors or missionaries, a concern for higher education grew. Princeton, Rutgers, Brown, Dartmouth universities, all were established as a direct result of the Great Awakening. Historians have connected the, the Great Awakening and the American Revolution. Y'all, Christians enjoying spiritual liberty in Christ would come to crave political liberty and freedom. The Great Awakening not only revived the American church, but it reinvigorated American society. Do you get that Jesus fixes everything? He redeems things that are broken, whether that is your own heart that's broken or a relationship between husband and wife or mother and, 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 and daughter or son and father. He redeems and fixes everything. That includes our country. And we saw that in the 1700s. Y'all never give up on praying for spiritual awakening. Jesus taught us that we should always, in Luke chapter 18, that we should always pray and that we should never lose heart. Let's follow the example of others who prayed until revival came in the spring of 1904. A young Welshman named, uh, his name was Evan Roberts. He found himself repeated, repeatedly over and over waking up from 1 a.m. to 5 a.m. praying, praying for revival, praying that Jesus would change hearts. And by November, several months later, a powerful spiritual awakening was spreading through Wales. God worked through the testimony of, of a new believer named Flory Evans. Pastor Joseph Evans was asked for testimonies. Flory got up, had never said anything in front of anybody, but Flory gets up with a trembling voice, and she just said, I just love Jesus with all my heart. And God used that to melt the hearts of lots and lots of folks. The London Times, it's a newspaper. Y'all remember newspapers? It's a London Times newspaper. Reported all kinds of changes that took place in the public spirit. For example, in, <coughs> excuse me, in Swansea, people who had left their parents People used to take their parents when they got older to these places called the workhouse for the poor and they could do something to earn their keep. People came and got them out of those places. Entire congregations were on their knees praying, <clears throat> and, and I'm going to quote this, for the first time there was not a single case of drunkenness at the Swansea County Courthouse. The Bible Society saw orders for Bibles triple from the previous year. At Bangor University in Wales, revival fires were spreading in January of 1905. It was written in the, in the London Times that only about a third, maybe a fourth of the students were even attending class, be beginning with a spontaneous outburst of praise and prayer during one of the classes. They just started praying together rather than going to class. At a united prayer meeting, the paper wrote, that all of them are, are down on their knees in tears, sobbing. David Lloyd George, who later became prime minister in England, he saw one of his political rallies taken over by this Welsh revival. On January 11, 1905, he said, and I'm going to quote him, he said the Welsh revival gave hope that at the next election, Wales would declare with no uncertain sound against the corruption in high places which handed over the destiny of the people to terrible evil. The London Times reported in January of, uh, January 16th of 05, a week or two later, at another place called Glen Neath, that a feud had existed for 12 years between the two independent chapels. But during that last week, United Services had been, uh, had, had been held in both chapels, and the ministers had shaken hands before the congregations. And then the fires of a revival spread across the Atlantic Ocean. In 1904, in Atlanta, Georgia, y'all, the newspapers in Atlanta reported an amazing revival of prayer that swept across 
the whole city of Atlanta. On November the 2nd, the Supreme Court of the state of Georgia closed for two hours so the whole city could pray. Factories, stores, offices, bars closed so that the whole city could pray. For two hours at midday, all of Denver, Colorado was held in a spell. The Denver Post said this. The marts of trade were deserted between noon and 2 o'clock this afternoon so that people could pray. All of Denver was in prayer. In the spring of that year, a Kentucky pastor died of overwork after receiving 1,000 new members in his church in 60 days. Out of a population of 50,000, only 50 unconverted adults were left in Atlantic City, New Jersey. Revival came to North China in the 1930s in answer to several years of prayer. Not several minutes or days, several years of prayer. A missionary named Maria Monson wondered what good would her praying do. You ever wonder what good is my praying going to do? The fervent prayer of a believer, y'all. They prayed for years. She longed to see God's river of life flood a totally spiritually dry China. And then she realized that this river that she lived near, the Yangtze River, began when tiny drops of rain came together at the top of a mountain. Maria sought a prayer partner who would join her in claiming the promise that if two of you agree on earth concerning anything that you ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. She finally found somebody to join with and she wrote this the awakening has begun two of us have agreed she said the raindrops of revival prayer were coming together in November of 1930 she said a great revival is coming and it will begin in the North China mission in 1932 about 40 Christians were meeting in a town in China for prayer four times a day starting at 5 a.m. believers and unbelievers were convicted of sin. Two men that reported uh, that they hated each other came together. Love was strong and deep, and she says joy abounded. Joy abounded. When revival came, more people were born again in China than any other year. One pastor said that 3,000 people in his town of 10,000 came to Christ that week. Pastors, missionaries, lay people experienced a deeper walk with Christ, a deeper Christian life than they had ever experienced before. A spirit of prayer was poured out all over the church. The Holy Spirit was just poured out all over the church, all around the globe. People loved to pray. Prayer meetings lasted two, three, four, five hours at a time. Folks on their knees just crying out to God and praying. The prayer of children led to the salvation of mom and dad. And I could go on and on. And I did that, and I did that, and it was awkwardly long. But I want you to know that in that song that we, that we sang a minute ago, he said, what you did before, you can do it again. Do you trust that? Today, as we sit, do we trust that God is bigger than the jacked-upness of our culture? I do. Absolutely no doubt. So the prayer is, Lord, what you did before, you can do it again, and we beg you to. So Acts chapter 8, middle of the first century, 2,000 years ago. The need of the hour was revival. 2021. 21st century today, the need of the hour is revival. It's not revolution. It's not a bunch of craziness. Jesus is the need. The need is revival. A true movement of God in the hearts and in the minds and in the lives of the people. People within the church and people outside of the church. In other words, we pray that God would move in a mighty way in his people. And we pray that God would move in a mighty way with unbelievers. For sure. In these 21 verses, verse 5 through 25, we see an incredible, of Acts 8, an incredible study 
on revival. And we see three kind of big things. The first thing we see is a preacher. Philip in verse 5. And then in verse 6 we see the essentials of revival. And then from verse 7 to the end of the passage we see the evidences of revival. So first thing we see is the preacher, Philip. Verse 5, Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. He didn't go down there and read them a dissertation on some theology. He went to Samaria and preached Christ. Simple message. The dead guy went in the grave and the live guy came out. It's a simple message. The resurrection. He preached the Christ. And Philip was a lay leader. Philip wasn't a pastor. Philip wasn't an apostle. This is not the apostle Philip. This Philip was one of the the guys in Acts chapter 6 that was chosen to to help with the distribution of food to the widows, if y'all remember that when we walked through Acts 6. He's a layman. So the first great thrust of evangelism outside of Jerusalem was a lay person, not a vocational pastor, not an apostle, a lay leader. In fact, the first time the word evangelist is used of anybody in the Bible, it's used of Philip. Acts 21. He's a lay person. But he's a lay person, a layman who dedicates his time and his energy and his brain space and his life to the things concerning the kingdom of God. He dedicates his life to Christ. Great revival necessitates great layman being sold out for Christ. Lay folks being all in for Christ. Willing to preach Christ. Willing to to teach Christ. Don't ever forget that at best I get you four times a month. Statistically it's 1.7 times a month. So I get you probably two to four times a month. But you get the people in your world every day. The person next door to you. The person that you work with in the cubicle next to you at Synovus the, the, or Aflac or wherever you may work, the person that you work with, the, 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 the teenager that may be living right across the hall from you at your house. You get these people every day, every day. Revival necessitates everybody that names the name of Christ being bought in all in, sold out for Jesus. One becomes two and two, four and four, eight and eight, sixteen and I'm, my math, I can't go any further than that. So we got the preacher, Philip, first. And then in verse six, we see the essentials for revival. And the crowds, with one accord, paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. The essentials of revival. First of all, we got to be of one accord. We got to be in one mind, one spirit, one purpose, unity in the brotherhood and the sisterhood of Christ. Full cooperation, willing to, to hear the message and to see the miracles. If people shut their eyes to the miracles and shut their ears to the message, there cannot be revival. We have to be unified together for the kingdom. Second, we got to pay attention. We got to pay attention. Some translations say that, that, that they took heed of Philip's words. In other words, they kept their hearts and they kept their minds and they kept their eyes on the message. What message? The message of a, of a, of a resurrected Christ. So in this study on revival, the first thing we see is, is the, 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 the messenger, the, the, the preacher, Philip. And then we see the, really just the two kind of essentials. And then we see the evidences of revival, starting in verse 7. For, I'm going to read all of this to you, and then we're going to talk about it, 7 through 25. For unclean spirits crying out with, and I want you all to, Focus and really think about the words that Luke writes here. For unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them. 
and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great, pointing to himself, saying he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, and probably it freaked them out when they heard that those heathens in Samaria had received the word of God. So they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, for he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they, lay, they Peter and John, laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the lay the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord, if possible, that the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. He says you're captive to your sin. And Simon answered, pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Now when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord as Peter and John, they returned to Jerusalem preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. I want to shoot through these different evidences that we see. This template of, of what precedes revival and, and the way that God uses people and then what happens. Number one, lives are changed. Lives are changed. Miraculously, crazily, unbelievably changed. If you are a Christ follower, raise your hand if your life has been changed. Mine has. Oh my gosh. I, had, I heard a friend of mine who's a pastor one time. He, he had told me before about a lady in his church years ago. And he said, she is so mean. Like she is so, she, he said, she's one of the nastiest people that I've ever met. I said, is she a believer? He said, yeah, you should have seen her before. <laughs> so you just, y'all, you just got to, your, your lives are changed. Now hopefully they, they change more and more with every day. You know, hopefully she's let this woman less mean each day. So she must have been pretty nasty at first. But lives are radically changed. And we see it in this passage in Acts. Evil spirits are cast out. People who can't help themselves at all are healed. Diseased and crippled people, bodies, crippled bodies are healed. God's power is witnessed by all of those people undeniably witnessed lives are changed evidence number one evidence number two is is they experienced joy incredible joy is experienced verse 8 says so there was much joy in that city what did that missionary in China say joy all she wrote volumes about the joy that existed on the other side of that revival when you truly authentically come to Christ hopelessness becomes joy the joy of sins forgiven the joy of deliverance the joy of hope the joy of hope the joy of really truly knowing and feeling the presence of God the joy of of security and assurance and confidence so joy 
And then evidence number three is deliverance. Evidence number three of revival is deliverance from the great depths of sin. Deliverance from false prophets. Deliverance from false teachers. Deliverance from, quote, religion. Deliverance from being a slave to the law. The law doesn't get thrown out, but we're delivered from being a slave to the law. Deliverance from sorcery. It can't get any deeper than these people had found themselves, y'all. They were enslaved by error. They were enslaved by false teaching. They were enslaved by false prophecy. They were enslaved, at the end of the day, by false hope. They were putting their hope in things that were not of the kingdom. They had been enslaved by a false teacher named Simon, an imposter, a wolf in sheep's clothing. And he used sorcery, and he used magic, and he used used witchcraft, and he used mediums and astrology and charms and spells. And y'all, if you don't think that stuff, that spiritual warfare takes place today, you are wrong. My oldest son spent six weeks in Africa in the jungle, and the first thing he said when we got home is, Daddy, you were right, spiritual warfare is real. I mean, he dealt with a literally a witch doctor in the jungles of Zambia. And the witch doctor had his own little disciples. And if they had a certain bracelet on with these little charms, they were a disciple of the witch doctor. He said, Daddy, I looked in this woman's eyes and there was nothing there. He said, she was, she was, her eyes were totally black. And he said, she was just, there was just nothing there. And then he said, at least nothing good. So y'all, and I'm not saying that you're seeing that all over America. But you are seeing the spiritual warfare all over America. And if you've never felt it or seen it, put the word yet on the end of that sentence. Because you will. And this guy, Simon, was all about, he bewitched people. He deceived people. And yeah, he amazed them and he astonished them because they bought what he was selling. He was a snake oil salesman. And they bought what he was selling. Verse 10 says they paid attention to him. It's the same word that's used in verse Six, I think, that they paid attention, that they took heed of Philip's words. In other words, they had been keeping their hearts and their minds and their eyes focused on Simon and all of his sorcery stuff. They were taken captive. You and I can be taken captive. We can. We can be deceived. Again, because the nature of deception is that you don't know that you're being deceived or it wouldn't be deception. Does that make sense? We can be deceived. Guard your hearts in Christ. Guard your hearts with his word. When you hear something, whether it's from this stage coming out of my mouth or wherever, measure it against the word of God. You hear something somewhere else, don't measure it against something I said. Measure it against God's word. You can be deceived and I can be deceived by false teachers and false prophets and Jesus Christ is the only one that can deliver us from that. Evidence number three. Evidence number four is this, that many believe and are baptized. Really, they preach two things. Really, it's one thing. The kingdom and a resurrected Christ. Preached the resurrected Christ and the inauguration of his kingdom. And what happens? Many believed and are baptized. It is not Jesus plus something. And it's not Jesus minus something. He is enough. We sang that song last week or the week before, more than enough. He is more than enough. We don't have to make him sound better or look better or feel better. He is enough. He's more than enough. And so they preach the gospel, the whole gospel. Not some health and wealth prosperity junk they preached the gospel message and many believed and were baptized and there will be false professions evidence number five there will be false professions of faith when people experience revival there will always be counterfeits and there'll always be be hypocritical professions of faith always will be and the truth is those kind of make the real ones the authentic ones the genuines the genuine ones, that kind of makes them shine. But there'll always be false professions, number five. 
And then number seven, hypocrisy is called out. You'll notice I skipped number six, just we're coming back. Hypocrisy is called out. Peter calls Simon out. He tells him, dude, you can't buy God's gift. You can't buy somebody out of hell, and ain't no such thing as purgatory, but let's say you can't buy them out of hell and, and buy them into heaven. Contrary to what the Roman Catholic Church says, that's heresy, y'all. You cannot write a check to buy somebody out of hell. It don't work that way. So Peter calls him out. He's like, dude, you can't buy this. You can't buy God's gift. He says, your heart's not right. He says, you are being held captive by sin. And he tells him, repent of your wickedness. He calls him out. Hypocrisy is called out. Evidence number seven. Evidence number eight is this. Hearts, and in your worship, God, I should have told you this 15 minutes ago. I've kind of got the verses next to these things that I'm talking about. Hearts get fired up for evangelism. Peter and John are called to Samaria. Why are they called to Samaria? Because they got word that the Samaritans were receiving the word of God. They got word that the Samaritans were being saved. They got word that there was revival going on in Samaria. And they probably are like, in Samaria? Like, are you kidding me? There ain't no way them heathens are coming to Christ. So Philip probably shot Peter a text message and said, y'all come look. <laughs> come look and see what's going on up here. And so they go. They go. They, got, they testified. They, they got fired up. And then they go back to Jerusalem, edified, built up, fired up, on fire for the Lord because the fruit of revival is what? Is more revival. It's a big snowball. And so the fruit of revival is more revival. The opening up of, of hearts and minds for both the preaching of and the receiving of the gospel message. They were fired up. So evidence number six, and I want to land on this for a minute, is that the Holy Spirit moves and shakes the Holy Spirit part of the Godhead Father, Son, the Holy Spirit we have a very real tendency to the Holy Spirit is the distant third person of the Trinity we have a tendency to call the Holy Spirit it please don't do that if I do that at home, Susan throat punches me. The Holy Spirit. I mean, the Holy Spirit. Verse 14. Now, when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them, that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them. Hmm. But they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. That's kind of a puzzling passage. It's kind of a puzzling passage because the Samaritans are said to have already believed and been baptized in verse 12. Yet verse 16 said the Holy Spirit had not fallen upon them. Hmm. Don't you think about a couple things. There is absolutely no legitimate question whatsoever about whether the Samaritans were truly saved or not. Philip knew the Lord. Philip was filled with the Holy Spirit. Philip was filled with the power of the Holy Spirit. He preached the gospel in crystal clear terms. He preached the Christ. He preached a risen Christ. He knew that, he knew how people were saved. He knew what was involved in salvation. He wasn't no dummy. He knew all of this. So it is unthinkable to, to have in your mind that Philip didn't proclaim the full-blown gospel. That he gave them some half gospel. No, he didn't. It would also be unthinkable to think, to believe that 
all of the throngs of Samaritans that named the name of Christ, that they were all deceiving him. That would be contrary to Scripture. So they heard the gospel and they were saved. But then Romans chapter 8 verse 9 says anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. Well, if a person is truly saved, the Holy Spirit is indwelling them if a pers- upon salvation. If, if a person is truly saved, he is indwelt. The Holy Spirit has entered his heart, entered his life. Scripture is clear on that. Well, that's a little bit of a conundrum in light of those two, those two little facts. Apparently, the Samaritans had two significant experiences with the Holy Spirit. Upon salvation, he entered their life. Upon salvation, they were indwelt with the Holy Spirit. When they believed, they were born-again believers. They were, Paul would write, they were a new creation. They went from death to life, right? When we baptize somebody, when, when they take the God plunge, we say you're buried in the likeness of his death and raised to walk in the newness of life. They were walking in the newness of life. Well, how? Because they were indwelt with the Holy Spirit, number one. But they also, the Holy Spirit, fell upon, poured himself out on them, infilled them, manifested his presence and power on on a very special occasion when Peter and John visited them. We're taught that there would be special manifestations, special infillings of the Holy Spirit. Scripture teaches that the experience of the of the believers in the of the early church in the in the book of Acts it demonstrates clearly that there is more than just one significant experience with the Holy Spirit that happens upon your salvation. The early believers experienced periodic manifestations of these special infillings. Look at Acts chapter 2 when Peter is preaching He's preaching in Aramaic or Hebrew. They're hearing, if y'all remember in chapter 2 at Pentecost, they're hearing in their own language. They needed those experiences. Down through history, as the need comes up, God has given, God has provided special manifestations of His Spirit. As the need has come up, the need according to who? The need according to God. As God has seen that he has, that there is a need out there that he, only he can fulfill, he does his thing. And he does his thing through the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is moving and shaking all throughout history. And in this moment, there was a very special need that existed between the Samaritan Jews, excuse me, the Samaritan believers and the Jewish believers. The Jews and the Samaritans were bitter enemies for years and years and years. Just remember how significant it is when Jesus encounters a Samaritan woman at the well. His guys did not even want to walk that way. They wanted to walk around Samaria. We're not going to go in with those half-breeds. We're not going to go. They're dirty. They're unclean. We don't want to have anything. We don't need to be anywhere near them. Jesus meets this Samaritan woman at the well. Bitter enmity between these two groups of people. They despised each other and the Holy Spirit needed to fall upon the Samaritans as much for the sake of the Jews as it was for the sake of the Samaritans. The the Jewish Christians, particularly the Jewish Christian leadership, they and God in His infinite wisdom and sovereignty knew this and provided it But they needed to see and experience the Holy Spirit falling upon a people that they despised. They, the Jewish leadership, needed to buy in and see the Holy Spirit falling and moving and shaking in these what they called half-breeds. They needed to see that. And God in His sovereignty provided that. So by witnessing that sight, they would know and they would testify to God's receiving the Samaritans. 
They saw God receiving the Samaritans into his family. What an amazing sight that must have, that must have been. And, a, you know, a wedge had to be driven into the barrier that had separated those two nations for so long. And the Jerusalem church would have to accept the Samaritans because God accepted them. And I think that there is significance, I believe that there is significance in the fact that God sent his Holy Spirit upon the Jews first in Acts chapter 2. Who was at Pentecost? Why were they there? They were there for Pentecost. It was a Jewish thing. They were Jews. Acts chapter 2. And then to progressively break the entrenched barrier of prejudice between the Jews and the Gentiles. That's what rolls down in history. Acts 2, Holy Spirit falls on the Jews. Acts 8, Holy Spirit falls on the half-Jew, half-Gentile. Acts 10, which we'll get to, the Holy Spirit falls on the Gentiles. Y'all, heaven ain't going to be all white. Right? Heaven ain't going to be all Jewish Christians. Heaven ain't going to be all Gentile Christians. The Lord, in His sovereignty and His wisdom, as He breaks down, it's what... It's what Whitfield said about the denominational junk, man. This is about Christ. All of us as Christ followers. And we see that progressively roll out in Acts 2, Acts 8, and Acts 10. And it's revival. And our country needs revival. And it's always preceded by bad times. Just know that. God works in all of that. Y'all, we need a mighty movement of God. We need all of us to pray every single day for a mighty movement of revival. Every day. I think I've said this before, but in the chance of being redundant, I'm going to say it again. Susan's aunt, Sarah Worthington, prayed for my salvation every day for 20 years I only wish that I would have half the prayer life that she has we should be on our knees praying for this this sleeping slumbering church in America to lead a revival charge like this country has never seen before and it starts with one heart changing. One heart. Your next door neighbor, your son, your mama, your daughter, your cousin, the dude you're working with. I don't know. One heart at a time changes. One heart. You can witness to your friends and your family and your neighbors way better than I can. They know you. They have seen the change in your life. They don't know me. The explosion of evangelism outside Jerusalem was not led by a pastor. It was led by somebody sitting in the pews. That is so significant, y'all. Talk about him when you lie down and when you rise up. Talk about him when you walk along the way. Wear him every day out in the world people look at your life and say man there is something I knew you in high school there was something different about you well what is different well let me tell you about my Jesus that needs to be the answer right y'all pray that people would that the bondage and the and the barriers would be broken you know pray that the Lord would heal relationships Pray that chains of addiction would be broken. That chains of hate would be broken. When I say that Jesus fixes everything, like he really does, man. He really reconciles and redeems everything that is broken. Pray that we would see the fire and the wind of revival sweep across our country. And from our country across the oceans to the rest of the world. And I said it a minute ago, it starts when one heart changes. 
So let me just say this. I don't know where you are today, but if you had not got a heart transplant, if you're not a new creation, if you've never said yes to that offer that he makes us, please consider that today. Don't go to sleep tonight without at least considering it. And it begins with self-awareness that, that I am a sinner and that I am in need of, of being rescued. It's got to start there. And from there, i got to repent and turn away from it and turn towards Him. Turn towards Him. Believe that He died on the cross and that took care of that sin problem and that He walked out of the grave alive. Confess that with your mouth. Cry out to Him to be saved. And then tell somebody about it, y'all. Tell somebody about it. Y'all pray with me. Lord, we are so in love with you today. And Lord, we trust and we believe that you can do every single thing that you say you can do. And so Lord, I pray that for anybody that is watching, listening, or here today physically, that if they don't know you, that right now they would repent of their sin and they would turn towards you and cry out to you to be saved and we know that you will save them. And Lord, I pray that you will move through your Holy Spirit through our, our city and our state and our country. And Lord, that you will lead millions of people into your very presence Lord, that you would prick hearts and minds and people would come to know you and they don't even know why they were even in the building. Lord, that the fire of revival, the, the liberty that comes along with that, Lord, that people would thirst and hunger and be starved for something that only you can fill. Lord, we pray for that to happen. And Lord, we love you. In Jesus' name, amen.